Guys, this is Joe just popping in to ask if you've signed up for your free marketing consultation with MDT Marketing yet. If you haven't, head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, get your free consultation today. Don't do it alone. Find the right partner. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience Podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio here with you again. I do want to remind our audience that we are writing a book. Yes, we are, ladies and gentlemen. We're writing a book that we are going to synthesize all of the themes, ideas, innovations, and basic brilliance of all of the 100 college and university presidents we have interviewed. I think, but I'm not sure, we might be the first podcast in the world to interview 100 in college and university presidents. And we did it all during the time of COVID. So we have pretty unique information. Um, I will see if somebody agrees that our information is unique. And I'm going to ask my co-host today, his name is Dr. Eric James Stevens. He's founder of Higher Higher Ed. He's also an ed tech analyst. Eric, how are you? I'm doing well, Joe. And I got to say, I've been a fan of EdUp from, from the beginning, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, Y'all do some of the coolest work out there right now. Well, thank you, my friend. And we've been, uh, we have been uh, connected for a long time, and you've been a great supporter, and I thank you. And I'm so honored to have you as a co-host. Um, we, this is going to be now when this episode, I don't know what order we release these, but this will be the second one that we've recorded together. Now, um, we were full of mistakes on the first one, Eric, but this <laughs> one we're going to get through mistakeless, right? Mistake free. Mistake, yeah, mistake free. Well, you are, you're an academic, so you have to correct me when it comes up. So I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> um, we have an amazing guest for you today. Um, an honor, I would say to have him on this show. Um, he, he is uh, a 20-year vet of a higher ed- education presidency. His name is Dr. Javier Ceballos, and he's president of Framingham State University. Javier, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. And I'm the one that is honored to be here with you guys today. So thanks for having me. Mm, no, 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 no. It's, it's our honor. We're, we're so happy to have you. Yeah, very much so. And it goes uh, with, here's the first question, Javier, I'm going to ask you two questions. Um, Number one, which which island are you going to be retiring to when you officially retire next year in August? (laughs) I'm actually not retiring to any island. I'm uh, staying in the Metro West area in Greater Boston, where we are, and just moving to, uh, to Hopkinton, which is the starting line for the Boston Marathon. So that means that we're going to be exactly 26.2 miles away from Boston. And that's a great location to be in. No, no islands. Huh? You're not no, going to end up in the Caribbean. Not as much sun there. No, I think I did my Caribbean years when I was growing up. And so I grew up in Puerto Rico. So I, you know, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the, in the Caribbean and I love Puerto Rico. I have a great deal of uh, affection and fantastic memories for my college, my high school, my college years in Puerto Rico. But I think that, you know, I, I, I did enough sunburning in those days. So I'm, I'm happy to stay with the fall leaves turn to beautiful colors and uh, and when spring brings renewed energy to the campus. So it's great to be in this area. So if you didn't pick it up now, audience, uh, Javier has uh, announced his retirement. He's going to retire about a year from now. It, Basically, he retired uh, about six months ago, so a full 18-month uh, cycle to uh, finish out his presidency. 
and uh, the the university in the college is starting, um, and and I think well into the presidential search now, Javier. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about Framingham State University and your time there. What do we need to know about Framingham that we don't know? Where are you located? What kind of students do you serve? Great, Framingham State University actually is the oldest or the first public teachers college in the United States. It was founded in 1839 by Horace Mann. And uh, it, it was based on the French model of the Ecole Normale. So it was the first normal school, which was the word that they used at the time uh, in the nation. And uh, it was also very devoted and committed to equality and diversity. And it was uh, founded by fervent abolitionists. So in 1842, three years after our founding, the president of the, or the, at the time it was called principal, the principal of the university went to the board and uh, said that he needed to accept an African-American woman. And she was accepted. He threatened to resign if the institution didn't accept her. So the board accepted her and she was the first graduate of a normal school in the United States, Mary Miles Bibb. And then she went on to be a really powerful figure in the abolitionist movement. She married a runaway slave. They moved to Canada. They started a newspaper. They were part of the Underground Railroad. I mean, it's just that it's an incredible history. So Framingham State was founded from the beginning uh, in the principles of making accessible to making education accessible to everyone. Uh, among the great um, students that we have had, Olivia Davidson was also an African-American who came to Framingham State and then she married Booker T. Washington and moved to Tuskegee with, uh, you know, to, to help him the, in the creation of the Tuskegee Academy. So we have had a long tradition of uh, being involved in uh, human rights, in equal rights, in social justice, in diversity, in inclusion, in anti-racism. And that is something that we're extremely proud of as an institution. Uh, today, we are an institution that reflects the society we live in in many ways. About 38% of our students are students of underrepresented uh, groups, uh, BIPOC students. About 45% of our students are first generation students. And about the same percentage of students get Pell Grant. And of course, most of our students have financial aid and, uh, or, and work. So it's, a, you know, it's an institution that uh, represents and helps a society. And I always like to say that the comprehensive regional institutions like ours, our mission statement is very simple. It should say something like, we create the middle class. That's all that we really should say. I mean, we just really bring in first generation students, immigrant students, uh, language learners, et cetera, up and give them the opportunity to get an education and move up through, through the ranks and be productive society members. So uh, that's one of the things that I am extremely proud of and our institution is really proud of. So that's in a nutshell uh, what Framingham State uh, uh, is. I, I'd like to add, to add uh, we started as a women's college, so we were a women's institution only until 1964, when we accepted the first group of men. And as a result of that, in the 19th century, a group of uh, women philanthropists in Boston decided that they needed to invest in helping women get productive careers. So they founded what, we, what became home economics at a while, and it has transformed itself into two of our most uh, important departments, uh, nutrition, which is of course in the sciences, uh, nutrition and food sciences, and fashion design and merchandising, which is again a really, a really uh, uh, important program for us. So 
you know, we have always had this applied practical side in addition to being the teachers college. And of course, we still have a very strong tradition in training teachers for, for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. What does live to the truth mean? It's, it's your that motto. The yeah, our motto was the, the first uh, principal of the, of the school, Cyrus Perez, who was a fascinating uh, individual. Uh, he ended all his classes with that telling students, you have to live to the truth. So we have embraced that motto and means that we have to keep our ethical compass and we have to live by the principles of always being truthful and always live to, the, to what we believe in. And I think that that is what makes our institution uh, unique, that commitment to, to being ethical and to being always uh, following the truth. And it's kind of our North Star, you know, we always follow that, uh, that motto. I'm going to, um, I told Eric, I'd, I'd let him ask some questions, but I got to ask one more before I do, because um, we were connected to you, uh, Javier, uh, via Millie Garcia, Dr. Millie Garcia, who yes. uh, we interviewed, I don't know, a ways back, um, a, a, a literally a ball of fire is she, she is just like yes. on fire. And uh, we asked her um, specifically um, to put us in touch with as many Latin and Latino and Latina presidents as we could possibly find, because we were noticing um, in our mission at the Oedip Experience, we, we try to get as many people from each and every single background as we possibly could. And we were putting out all these episodes and we're going, wait a second, we, we just don't have as many uh, Latinx leaders as we would have hoped for. So she gave us a nice long list and your name was on it. And here we are. Your uh, retirement now, congratulations again, but that, um, you know, as a seasoned uh, Latino leader in higher ed, which as a percentage, Latino and Latino leaders aren't, it's not a high percentage of leadership in higher education. It's probably in the single digits, if I had to guess. Um, you're, you're leaving the industry. And uh, that, 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 it does say it hurts, but, you know, losing someone such as you in the Latino community, what, what needs to be done in higher ed, in your opinion, to bring more uh, Latinx leaders to the highest level? Well, I think that, you know, that one of the things that Millie uh, Garcia has been working on, and I've been working too, is uh, developing that pipeline of leadership. And there are uh, a group of younger leaders, that Latinx leaders moving up through the ranks. Uh, recently, um, one of my colleagues in the state system in Massachusetts just moved to be the new president of SUNY Oneonta, Alberto Cardelli. He just was appointed uh, and started now. By the way, that is my my undergraduate alma mater, University. Oh, oh. well, now, now you have a Latinx president there. So as you know, get there, yeah, I'm going to contact him right away. Yeah, and actually, it's a very wonderful story because uh, the organization that we belong to, the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, ask you, since 2000 or 1998 or 2000, started a program called the Millennium Leadership Initiative, that was precisely uh, answering the question that you asked: is that how can we develop a pipeline of future college leaders that represent the diversity of this country. So it was meant to attract women, people of color, and you know, to, to, to the program. And uh, I had the, the, the pleasure and the honor of being Alberto's uh, mentor in the program when he was going through MLI a few years ago, and now he's a college president. And of course, that makes me very proud, the fact that he has moved up to, to that rank. So I think that Yes, we are a handful. We are certainly not many uh, Latinx presidents. Very, very few in the in the land grant institutions, uh, a handful. Uh, in the ASCU institutions, a few more, but not many. 
and uh, a, a handful in the private institutions and a few more in the community colleges, but not enough to represent the rich diversity that uh, of the Latinx community in the country. Recently, uh, I read an article about uh, a, a second, I, I was born in Ecuador, so there's a community college president in Florida who was just appointed who is Ecuadorian. He's, I think he's, I think he's the second Ecuadorian president in the United States. So, you know, we are a, we are a team of two. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what our team, power team of two. Mm -hmm. You're a power team of two. A power team of two. Yeah. Well, now he's going to be a power team of one after they retire. <laughs> Other Ecuadorians will be coming up through the ranks. And not only Ecuadorians, but Colombians and Peruvians and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and, you know, Cubans, etc. So the, the rich diversity of, uh, of the Latinx culture, you know, that is not truly represented in, in, the, in the college presidency ranks. And when I started in 2002, we had uh, more Latinx presidency at ASCU institutions that we have today. So we have actually moved backwards. And I think that, uh, you know, the last figures from ACE a, a couple of years ago, when they had the last census, indicated the same thing, that we have less um, Latinx presidents now than we did uh, 10 years ago. So we have to continue to work really hard in those, in, in those leadership programs and opening opportunities and encouraging people to, to move up, encouraging faculty um, to become deans, encouraging deans to become vice presidents, encouraging vice presidents to look for presidency so we can continue to, to develop and build that, that pathway. You know, I, I just have so much respect for this commitment that you're, that you're describing as someone like I, I identify as an ethicist. Um, I love ethics and I love um, being a part of something that is meaningful. And it sounds like um, what you've been able to, to, to put together and help build has been this, this really beautiful collaborative thing. Um, and I really appreciate that. As, as I was going through in some faculty training, um, you know, a couple of years ago, the university we were we were becoming an HSI, a Hispanic serving institution. Um, and, and as I was going through, I just, I don't think I realized how embedded some of the, um, the frameworks for how I approach my education were embedded in without, without me looking at it and realizing that, that some of the, the best practices in, in teaching these Latinx students is really bringing in everything that is beautiful about community and giving back. Um, and I'm just learning that there's, these are, these are just best practices to be including the, to, to have this bend of creating the middle class and helping people give back to the community. Um, what would be your advice? Like for, for like a, a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution that that's out there um, that, that, that doesn't have that same kind of focus and that ought to have that focus what would be some of the recommendations that you would that you would give them to help them kind of come to this alignment of of something that is is really just kind of beautiful? Yeah. Well, I think that you know again to to build a pipeline, we have to start in the fourth or third grade, uh, you know, to to really build mm, mm. the pipeline, and that's one of the things that we have been doing here in Framingham. Uh, when I when I came uh, here about uh, eight years ago. Uh, we partnered with uh, our local community college, Mass Bay Community College, and we decided to create what we call the, the college planning center that was it meant to reach out to families and uh, children in the fifth grade or sixth grade, and start putting them in the path to college. And 
yeah, as we all know, you know, if, a, if you go to, to students in high school and they are already juniors or sophomores and they have not taken the writing courses and the lab courses and the math courses, it's really hard for them to catch up to go to college. So we have to start really early. We also realized that in uh, communities of color in particular, and in the African-American and, and Latinx community, families play a very, very important role. So we cannot only recruit the students, we have to recruit the families. And that's one of the things that we have been working really hard in just reaching out to the community. You cannot just go to the school and expect students to, to jump and follow you. You have to go where they are. You have to go to the churches, you have to go to the playgrounds, you have to go to the community events, and you have to talk to the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles. And, you know, we jokingly said that if a student is in a program and uh, we know that it's not doing the, the work, we call the grandmother and the student <laughs> is calling lines. <laughs> so, so that's one of the things that we really have to do. So in, in reality, you know, recruiting students uh, for the future is, a, is, a, is recruiting the, the, full, the full families and recruiting the, the whole community. And I know that it is something that has become a cliche. It takes a village, but yes, it does take a village. It takes a village of commitment from the institutions. It takes a village of commitment from the families, from the, from the churches, from the communities where they are in and making sure that they get the support that they need. We know that navigating higher education is not easy. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, the first time that a student faces a filing a FAFSA is probably like, a, you know, an anxiety moment. Foreign language. It's a foreign language. Yes, it yeah. is a foreign language. And in many cases, it is a foreign language in more than one ways. It is, a, it's, you know, English language learners is all these, all these issues that they have to face and, and, you know, getting all the documentation, all the paperwork, etc. So that's, you know, things that we have to, to work with the families and with the students to help them. In the particular case of Framingham, because where we are located, uh, Framingham is home for the largest uh, Brazilian uh, population in New England, as well as a That's cool. yeah, and, and a very substantial uh, Hispanic population. So we do everything in three languages. We do everything in English and Spanish and Portuguese so that we can actually reach to the families and, and really uh, make sure that the, the students obviously are bilingual. They are, or, or in many cases, they, they don't even speak Spanish or Portuguese, but the parents and the grandparents speak the other language and are not fluent in English. So we have to make sure that we reach to the families in the language that they are comfortable in. No, I think that's such um, a powerful, um, a powerful attitude to have when when you're going in with these recruiting. Like some of the conversations that that Joe has been having on some of the other conversations or the other podcasts about enrollment figures and re and recruiting, um, but just this approach and recognizing that the value add of a degree for this individual is a value add for the entire community because these are individuals that are going to be going back and and the, the reason that they want to become a nurse is to become a nurse in their community. Um, and I think that's just a really powerful motivation for them. Absolutely. And one of the challenges that I think that COVID created for, uh, for institutions like mine is that we have lost a number of our male students because in some cases they have become the providers for the families and they have been working whatever, whatever jobs they can get and they are you know, providing for the family and uh, it's a very sad thing because we want them to come back and finish the degrees, uh, but in the other hand, the families depend on them. So hopefully, you know, the, the post-COVID or the post-COVID world, if, uh, if that ever arrives, 
uh, will allow us to go back to recruiting all, all students, but in particular focus on males of color, because that has been a significant drop nationally. I mean, it's, you have been looking at the, at the news about it, so it's not only uh, in our case. And I think that it is something that is worrisome and it's one of the challenges that uh, higher education will have over the next two or three or four years. You know, the, the, the absolutely right. And, you know, uh, Javier, as you well know, uh, many community colleges, many state colleges are, are struggling with the, the decline in the student population. Where did the students disappear to? To your point, many male students, they went to work uh, during COVID because other family members were late. You know, there's there's real life issues that took those those folks out of higher education. How do we get that generation of students, frankly, back into the higher education pipeline as a, as a it's a challenge of challenges uh, during the COVID time period. Your your retirement is happening in conjunction with COVID, not to say that it's on purpose, but talk to me a little bit about how you worked through this retirement decision and did COVID play any part in it? Because, you know, look, and I don't think it's a, it's, it's, a strength to admit things, right? When, but we have a lot of presidents that come on and like, I'm tired and this is killing me. It, it keep, you know, keeping people safe, the responsibility, um, the, the changes in COVID, there's nothing that's stable and it wears on, it wears on all of us, particularly it wears on college presidents because they have the, the multiple angles of different stakeholders and the responsibility they hold. Did, is that playing a part in you reevaluating your future, or was it just time to hang it up, so to speak? No, I think I think it certainly does play a part. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, you know when you think about retirement. I, I was, you know, looking obviously, you know, I'm getting to the age of retirement. I was thinking. I of, thought you looked like I don't know, 32. I was, I was wondering <laughs> why you were retiring. I, 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 I just got my Medicare card, so that tells you something about <laughs> <laughs> the age, but. But, you know, COVID really created a different level of stress. I, I was, in my previous careers, I was, uh, you know, vice chancellor of student affairs at UMass Amherst, which is a fairly large institution and a very, uh, very activist institution with students that, you know, we used to schedule student protests by the hour, you know, so that they would have time to, to do that. And that, that, that was a level of stress that was different. Then I moved to Kutztown University in Pennsylvania, which was a smaller regional institution, larger than Framingham, but it was a different level of stress and, you know, different issues with budget, Pennsylvania in particular. And, you know, the issues that they are facing in Pennsylvania now with the consolidation of institutions were the result of uh, significant years of underfunding that created huge problems for us as presidents trying to, to deal with that. But here, the COVID the COVID stress, it's twofold. In, in the one hand, you know, the you you have a job to do. And the, you know, and we are all doing that job. I have a vice president that reminds me all the time, we all have a job to do and we have to do that. And on top of that, we have not to do everything that had to do with COVID. So, you know, I was hoping when I announced that I was gonna retire in March, last March, I was hoping that by now COVID would be over and my in my hopeful and naive mind, I was thinking my plan is to retire, bringing the institution out of COVID and letting, you know, letting the next president come in in that post-COVID world, which I still hope is going to be the case. The stress that COVID created in addition to, to work for me as college president is the decisions that have to do with health and safety of the campus. 
when you decide to you know open or close you know that uh, you are bringing people in that may get uh, sick and may get ill and uh, you know and god forbid that they may they may die i mean and that that kind of decision is something that is nothing compared to uh, student protests or a building takeover or whatever i had to deal with in my previous life and yes the answer is yes absolutely that kind of stress uh, really bears on 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 my decision to to retire i was feeling exhausted i was feeling really tired not only the, the amount of work that we had to do with covid but that level of uh, anxiety about what happens if uh, we come back in the in the spring as we did and you know i mean not in spring in the fall as we did last year and you know just have a handful of students on campus what happens if our testing protocols don't work what happens if the quarantine things that we have put in place uh you know are inefficient what happens if one of the students gets severely ill or what happens if faculty members get ill you know so all, that truly was a, a, a totally different of anxiety and stress that i had experienced before so the short answer to, to your question is yes absolutely covid will have an impact has an impact in my, in my decision will have an impact in the decision of a number of other presidents and other administrators that uh, that are going to be moving on in higher education if you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to and are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash add up. Yeah, this, this, this is the uh, point where I say that this is the episode's mic drop moment. It's a mic drop moment, right? Um, it's important to recognize the mental health toll that COVID is taking and what that means for not just uh, you, Javier, or me or anybody else, but staff. Uh, faculty. I mean, you you think about this as a compounding factor. And then from the perspective of students, and this is why I think it's so stressful from the college president conversations I've had on, is the it's very hard to understand everybody's risk tolerance. Do they want to come back? Don't they? Do they want hybrid? Don't do they not? The online on ground. And it's hard to forecast anything right now. And when you can't forecast something, you have to plan for everything. And if you're planning for everything, you're really in a, off in a hundred different directions. And that is stressful because it's the one thing that you don't plan for that ends up happening, right? And so there's this overwhelming responsibility to plan, 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 and, and scenario plan for unknown scenarios uh, that are completely difficult to predict. I, and, and I have so much respect for you and your peers to do that because even in the best of circumstances and the best of decisions, there's somebody that questions whether it's the right one. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, whatever we do is always going to be the wrong decision for somebody. It doesn't matter what what the decision. Right. But that's fine. I mean, I, it, it's the the point that you make about planning is what is the really important and interesting thing. I mean, it doesn't matter how hard you plan, as you mentioned, something always will come up 
that you haven't anticipated. And then, you know, you just uh, have to go back to the, to the drawing board. I like an, an example of my previous position when I was in Kutztown, you remember that we had a couple of hurricanes that came one year after the next, uh, you know, hit the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area and, you know, with a lot of rain, et cetera. So the first year, uh, our residence halls lost power and we had to accommodate students and move them to the, to the gyms and send them home and try to do everything we could because we didn't have power in the residence halls or in the campus. So of course, you know, the, the next thing we did immediately after that was buy generators for every single building. So, you know, we did our whitewash exercise. We went to, what are we going to do? And we put all the generators in the buildings and we signed a, a, a deal with a company uh, in, in Reading, Pennsylvania to make sure that the fuel in the generators was always, you know, clean and that they were running them, et cetera, keeping, make, making sure that everything was working. Next hurricane came in and the road got flooded. So the company that delivered fuel couldn't get to our campus. So we had planned, but we didn't plan to have fuel on campus. So now I had to get the people in facilities carrying cans of fuel to fill the generators so that we can run them. So wow. everything that you Unreal. Put, it is always going to be one extra twist that comes up that there's no way that you could have anticipated. And, you know, in the case of something with health like COVID, it's, you know, <laughs> it's tenfold that level of what is possibly, I mean, who could have predicted that Delta was going to be doing what it's doing right now? I mean, who would have anticipated that? And who knows what the, the next uh, mutation is going to be? Or, or maybe Delta will just run itself out and will develop herd immunity and will just be fine. That will be a wonderful scenario to happen. But the truth is, we don't know. And we just have to keep anticipating and keep looking at uh, you know, what are the best things we can do for our students and for our, the, the safety of our faculty, staff and students and for the well-being of our campus. Javier, um, I really appreciate your, your comments on these. Um, and ag again, your, your authenticity and, and being willing to share that it's, it's been difficult for you to have to experience this as a, as a college and university president, because um, I, I think in, it's, it's easy for me as someone who's coming out of being a faculty member not too long ago and seeing um, all the, the conversations that are happening on Twitter that it like stress is high, like mental health is, is, is low and it's difficult to navigate all of these things. Um, but as a leader of the campus, you're, you kind of have to be resolved for, for and, and, and looking forward for the positive. And that has to be able to take a, a toll I'm having to have that constant positive. And so my, my question I wonder is like, what are some of the ways that you've been able to kind of cope with that as a university president? And what are some things like, I mean, you know, you're, you're making the move, smart move, retiring. Um, for those who are just getting in to, to these positions, what would be your advice to them to, for, for their mental health? Well, I, I think that as you point out, mental health has been a, a challenge and before I go to your question directly, I want to say that, uh, you know, it's something that we are all worried about our faculty, staff and students about that uh, mental health. And we have all, I think every institution in the country, we have uh, invested in more counseling service in telecounseling, et cetera, but it's not enough because of all the pressure that we are feeling. Uh, we all, you know, as, as human beings and, you know, anyone under stress, we have to find some activity that can help us, you know, deal with, uh, with the stress. Uh, one of the things that uh, that I did and 
love to do during the during the winter last year, etc., is just to go hiking or snowshoeing in the in the woods. Just get out and you know be in a place that you don't have to to think about that. And uh, you know when the weather turns nice, uh, you know I, I try to escape to the golf course a couple of times and just uh, play a round of golf and. And that, do that with people that are not related to the institution. I've, uh, you know, I, I find that if I can meet people that have nothing to do with the university, then the 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 level of conversation is totally different. You talk about other things. You talk about uh, the weather. You talk about uh, the Red Sox. You talk about the Patriots. You talk about golf. You don't have to talk about, uh, you know, what are we doing uh, about uh, specific issues dealing with COVID. So, I I think that. Having uh, escape from the daily routine of the institution and having the ability to have a conversation with people that are not uh, involved in higher education, it's refreshing. It's a wonderful learning experience. You learn a lot about uh, what the community thinks and help you relax because for, a, for that short time that you are within that hour, two hours, three hours, whatever that is, uh, you don't have to think about uh, everything that is waiting for you in your email and this waiting for you into your inbox when you get to the office. One thing that we did uh, last year and that we're gonna continue this year is that we decided that we needed to have a quiet day for our faculty and staff. So we every month we ask people to have one day that we would not have email or we would not have phone calls so that people could actually work and work on, their, on, on the issues that they needed to work on without having to be going to the email every five minutes and you know answering phone calls, it was extremely well received. And I can imagine that's that's a gift. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean people people loved it and that's we're continuing it now because you know it's it's amazing again the amount of stress that you get just in front of the computer where you have to go for one Zoom meeting and you have two minutes in between and you have to answer three emails or four emails in between the minutes. And at the end of the day, you know, you get I get like 120, 130 emails a day. So, you know, although the quiet days didn't work for me that well, because obviously I continue to, to, to monitor and do things, it was so much easier not to get 120 emails in that day. <laughs> that really makes a difference. But it does. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's hard to get people off technology and have a quiet day. It'd, it'd, be, harder to, it'd be harder to get people off of it than it would be to, to have them follow it, right? Just to, just to get off is the hard part. Which you know, it's it's really the interesting part about all that is is um, you know technology is dominant for us now in in daily life and you know this is my segue to the presidential search now and asking you you know first of all how involved are you in in helping to find your replacement and secondly what does the future president of Framingham need to have maybe or what skill set is most important for them to have maybe that you didn't need. You know, 15 years ago, when you were a college president, uh, Javier, maybe that has changed. What What's the environment now? Is it technology uh, uh, know-how? Is it marketing and enrollment? Is it still fundraising? What's that key skill set for your predecessor to be uh, to give them the the best chance to be successful, as success as successful or more successful than you were? Yeah. Well, you know, the first part of your question, I am trying not to be involved in the search. Obviously, that is the board of trustees and the campus community, the search committee, etc., doing doing the search. And I've tried to 
to keep my you know to keep us as far apart from the process as, as I can because obviously in the as you know in higher education we want the process to be transparent and yep. I don't want to have any kind of a of feelings that I'm trying to push anybody uh, on, on the campus. Uh, the second part though is really interesting and, and again it is you know one of those things that I've been thinking about quite a bit as I'm looking at, at, at retiring. Uh, when when I started my my college presidency 20 years ago, uh, you know the the main the most important skill that you had in addition to just managing things like the budget and you know things of that sort was fundraising and then you know the the ability to go and talk to alums and and donors and get them enthusiastic about the institution and you know buying into the thing and we didn't have the the whole social media phenomena that we had our students by and large you know they were they were wired they had computers they had a you know, they, they had cell phones, but it was not uh, the level of uh, technology that, that we have today. Uh, how do we communicate with uh, students that use plat platforms that are so different uh, from, uh, from what we used to is gonna be one of the challenges. I mean, we send emails to the campus community and we know that the students don't open their emails. We have, a, you know, a text messaging system that is an opt-in. You cannot ask students, you know, to, you cannot force them to give you the, the phone number. So we send messages, but students that get them are just only the ones that voluntarily have given us uh, that. We try to send Twitter messages, but again, students have to, to subscribe to your Twitter feed. Same thing with Facebook, same thing with any, any of these platforms. And I always say, you know, how do we communicate in the age of communication is a, is a significant challenge. And it has changed. The student, the student body, the student population, has really changed and you know with all this uh, and the post zoom you know world is going to be different uh, i always say that you know when that people have asked me if i i'm going to go back to teach and teach in the classroom and i have thought about it and when you're in the classroom you're growing up with your students you are developing with them you are moving along with the the ways that they do things and you grow with them every every single year I haven't been in a classroom teaching in the last 25 years. So for me to think about going back to teaching would be, I would have to, to retrain myself in ways that I haven't anticipated. I mean, when, when the last time I taught, I used a, a blackboard that had chalk or a, <laughs> or, or a whiteboard that was just a, 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 a pencil or a pen. Uh, and now when we say whiteboard, these are all these electronic things that are absolutely sophisticated. When we say blackboard, these are learning platform that has nothing to do with the blackboard that I use. Right. Training yourself to, to go back to the classroom takes a, takes a lot of effort. And I think that the next president of this institution or the next president of any institution is going to have to be amazingly nimble and flexible with technology, with social media, with understanding where the students are, with understanding that uh, the next few years uh, hybrid models are going to have to be there. Understanding that competition is going to be really different uh, with uh, all these online platforms. I mean, we still, I still strongly believe, and we still strongly believe in the bricks and mortar model of education for our type of students, for our first generation students, for our Pell Grant recipients, etc. But a lot of students, you know, don't need a support, and they can shop and you know around and build their own curricula. And there is, a, if you want a commoditation of, a, of higher education, it has become a commodity in, in, in some ways. And we have to, to make sure that we develop processes to, to 
provide that service to the students that are looking for something that is different than when I went to school. You know, when I, I still strongly believe in the liberal arts model, that's the model that I, you know, that I grew up in and I think it's really crucial, but I also know that we have to provide professional training and we have to make sure that students have careers after they, after they finished. And as a matter of fact, in the institution, we just created recently, thanks to a really generous donor, an Institute for the Humanities that is doing exactly that, is getting students into the humanities with a professional bent, making sure that they understand that a training in the humanities can lead to real uh, significant job opportunities and providing them that opportunities uh, is crucial. But you know, how do we convince and how do we bring that word out to, to this world and now it's working on Zoom and other platforms like Zoom and, uh, and working uh, so through social media and, uh, and getting information through so many different sources. And, you know, so it's, it's gonna be a very complex one. So the next president will have to continue doing fundraising. That's one thing that we do. We'll have to continue management. We'll have to continue dealing with personal issues, but we have to be uh, creative uh, and nimble and uh, flexible and imaginative about how to really reach out to this new world of uh, students that come in, especially after COVID, being in front of uh, their computers and you know getting information that way instead of uh, socializing and being on campus. So bringing them back to the campus and bringing bringing them back and and providing them with the with the technology as well, so that they can do both this hybrid model, etc. It's going to be a fascinating uh, five year process to see what what happens with higher education. But it's going to be different. There's no question that it will be different. And I think that that's just a a fact um, that is just for for me. It, it's it's something that is difficult to even comprehend because I I left higher education um, as as an employee at least um, at the in spring of 2020. Um, as did my wife. We were we were you know unfortunately both laid off from our positions and we've landed elsewhere since then um but just this there's this idea oh you know i might be losing this actually mm. oh you know there it is losing that, your train of thought. no 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 i found my train of thought joe don't worry about it i didn't screw this this one up i promise that that teaching is so different everything i i, I cannot relate to the experiences of my friends who are still in academia because teaching is so fundamentally different. Um, yeah, I think that's where I was trying to make there, Joe. Help me out here. Yeah, no, it's, fu it's fundamentally different. And, you know, Javier, one of the arguments that I've made, and Eric, you know this because I've written a lot about it, traditional higher education, at least in the way we've had it for many, many years, there was a focus at the, on fundraising being this top skill set. You know, you've got to be able to fundraise. You're going to be, you know, going out and meeting donors and, and so on and so on. And that's, that's changed in a lot of ways. And it's changed because of the competition. It's, it's changed because branding is really important. We don't know what universities are going to do, how much they're going to invest in digital marketing, whether it's going to be on ground, whether it's going to be online. And so there's this change, I've argued, the change in skill set more toward technology, as you're saying, Javier, technology, marketing, enrollment knowledge. Now it doesn't, it, not less or more important, but certainly more focus on those other tactical responsibilities than there had been previously at the highest level, because your point, because networking now is online. 
you're not going to go off and meet donors right now, or they may not want to meet you, um, you know, especially high level ones. It's, it's, you have to have the ability to network through technology, to communicate through technology, to be transparent. I mean, how many, do you know that the number one way you guys know this, the number one way Gen Z uh, students search and research schools is through Instagram. And you wonder, does the university leader of the future need to be on Instagram every day going, Hey, here I am, here I am. And so there's a lot to think about there, Javier, and I really yeah. love your point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, that's one, and, and Instagram is is a fleeting platform like all of them are. I mean, exactly. you, who knows what three years from now is going to be the platform that students prefer. So that flexibility and that ability to to continue to learn about uh, what the students are doing. I mean, you know, it, it, I, a couple of years ago, we thought that we had done away with a yik yak and whatever, all the things like that, and it's back. So <laughs> in the between, you had all this TikTok and all this, you know, all, all these things that just keep coming up. So uh, keeping up with it, with the new technology and with the new things is going to be a challenge for any 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 new president. TikTok, yik yak, yin yang, it's all it's all coming from all directions, right, Javier? It's 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 even impossible to understand. I, I know, and that's uh, you know, I, I don't even know the names of the of the latest things <laughs> that are looking at. And, you know, well, and if you want to be on those platforms, you have to dance. Apparently, if you want to be on TikTok, you got to be dancing or doing something very strange. And you go, okay, wait a second, how are we supposed to market on this platform? Believe me, right. my university, I, I have a, a chat with my 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 marketing department all the time. I'm like, how do we, how do we uh, advertise to students on TikTok? I am not going to be dancing. I mean, that's just not going to happen. I'll, I'm all over social media, but I'm not going on TikTok to dance. It just isn't, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, I, I certainly, I, I don't think that I would have the moves anyway. So. <laughs> I know you'd have the moves, Javier. I know you would. <laughs> this is Hispanic. We're in Hispanic Heritage Month, by the way, as we, as we yes. uh, interview you here. And uh, it, it's uh, um, a, a shout out to all of the Hispanic leaders that we've uh, interviewed on the Edip experience. It's always an honor. And Eric, I saw you pop back in. So I want to give you back the mic before I close this out. No, I'm just really appreciating um, this conversation. And again, kind of um, for me as a co-host coming in here and being able to talk with, you know, some of just the most incredible leaders in, um, in higher education right now. And just really being able to see that, that human element um, that there, there are people who are just as passionate as, as I was as a faculty member um, that were, that are, that are in these positions. And it's, it's so good to see, uh, how much care that you have for your students and, and especially in, in putting forth that mission of, of, like I said, bringing up that middle class. And so I, I really appreciate your, you being here with us. Thank you, Javier. Thanks, Eric. And, you know, I think that uh, in institutions, sometimes we tend to look at faculty and administration if they are two different things. But, you know, mm -hmm. all of us in administration were faculty at some point. I, you know, I did all my career in the, in the faculty side before I, you know, I, I decided to move into administration. And we all have the same commitment and the same passion and the same objective that is to make sure that our students are successful. And I, I truly appreciate and, and, and really value uh, our faculty. I think that our faculty are so committed to our students and they do so much for them that, you know, it, it, it is a false dichotomy to think that faculty and, and administration are two different worlds. We are just one continuum with one same objective and just a different set of responsibilities. And I think that in my point of view, my role is to facilitate uh, the, the work of the faculty, do whatever we can from a management point of view so that the faculty can go into the classroom and 
do the work that is what the faculty is supposed to do. And so, you know, I love I that. I comments. love that a lot. I appreciate your comments because I think that it is really important to have that passion for all of us have that passion for the students. Javier, with every single guest, we ask the same two questions. I'm going to ask them to you today. And, uh, and by the way, before I ask them, I, I will give a shout out to our producer, Elvin Freites, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. He is, uh, I believe, Elvin's Puerto Rican born as well, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, he, is, uh, he is out there. Shout out to you, Elvin. Last two questions for you, Javier. Number one, uh, what did we not talk about about Framingham that you would like to say? Some question that we didn't ask, some initiative you have going on, anything at all that you want to say about Framingham? And number two, what do you see as the future of higher education? Well, I think that, you know, you asked me a, a lot of things about Framingham. I talked a little bit about our history, but I forgot one truly important uh, detail about, or, or two important alums that, uh, that Framingham has that I think that truly have made a difference in the world. One, of course, is Krista McAuliffe, who was the first uh, astronaut, the first teacher in space. And of course, she wasn't the Challenger, and she was one of the victims of the Challenger disaster. Right. We're very proud of uh, having her as an alumna. The other one is uh, Ruth Wakefield that contributed to the world in a totally different way because she invented the chocolate chip cookie, which is- Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Amen. Now, Amen. Yes. She owned the Toll House restaurant, and uh, she was- um, you know, people like to put chocolate in cookies, but the chocolate melted. And then she found a way to actually keep the chips in the cookies. And it was through Nestle's chocolate that didn't melt. So she sold the recipe to Nestle's and for a lifetime supply of chocolate chips. Uh, if she had been a better businesswoman than she was a, a baker, we would be today Ruth Wakefield University. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. Uh, but that's, that's uh, two things about Framingham that I think that uh, I didn't say. And the second question about the future of higher education, I, I am a very optimistic uh, person. I think that it's going to be different. There's no question that it's going to be different, but it's going to be uh, very successful. It's still a college degree is still the, the, the ticket to a better life. It is the ticket to a middle class, as I said a while ago. It is the ticket to, uh, to success, not only for the students, but for the families. And, uh, and, and for the next generations. So I, I am convinced that we will continue to have brick and mortar institutions like, like mine, but we will have a lot of different models of education. We're gonna have more mergers of institutions. We're gonna have more partnerships of institutions. We're gonna have more programs like early college programs. We wanna have more ways of doing things and more ways of aggregating credits and credentials so that uh, we, we will have to become more flexible and more nimble in how we do that. So, uh, you know, students may take a, a, an online course for an institution in California because it is the convenient time for them. And then we will have to take those credits and accept them in a seamless way. We do that now, but it is a little more of a complicated process. You know, you have to go through the registrar's office and do all these uh, equivalencies and all those kind of things. We wanna have to really simplify the transfer of credits from institutions uh, because it's going to be a churning of, uh, of credits around and, you know, students are going to be doing what, what they always do. They're very creative and they find what is convenient for them. And we're going to have to adapt to that. So the future of higher education in my mind is it's still really bright, but it's going to be different. We probably have, we will have less institutions because of mergers, because, you know, the demographics are shifting, especially in the Northeast and in the Midwest. But we will have, uh, you know, creative ways of dealing with that and 
And, and again, I think that, you know, the important thing is that we continue to offer opportunities to all students in the country to get, a, to get an education and open the doors to them and to their families to a better future. Well said, my friend. And I want to first thank my co-host, Dr. Eric James Stevens, for coming on today. Eric, thank you for joining me yet again. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Joe. Absolutely. Um, you know, this episode, uh, truly special. I, I you know, uh, it's always an honor to talk to somebody who's had so many years of experience in higher education, somebody that uh, is also transitioning out. So you get just a different perspective. And maybe it's even a little bit looser perspective, Javier, because you can look back and then look forward and know that things are coming to a beautiful end for yourself. I am not going to count out a Caribbean island uh, as your final uh, destination here at the end of your uh, retirement journey here. Who knows uh, where you're going to be, especially if you like to hit the uh, golf course. I'm not sure Boston is the long-term place for you uh, over there, but you know, if you like snow, it is. If you want a snowshoe, you could be there. (laughs) But a Caribbean island in January and February sounds absolutely wonderful. Yes, it does. Well, ladies and gentlemen, his name is Dr. Javier Savallos, and he's president of Framingham State University. And um, uh, Javier, it's been great to have you. And, and uh, I'm going to let um, our uh, producer, Elver Freitas, in honor of uh, Hispanic Month, uh, Heritage Month, take us out. And this is his real voice, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, this is not a sound effect. This is his real voice. And uh, before I do, I want to tell everybody, you've just add up. This is Elvin Freitas. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You guys like that? That's Elvin. All right, everybody, until next time. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your audience? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience responds to? Are you spending more time building reports than listening in on what your audience wants? These are not easy questions to answer. That's why our great friends at MDT Marketing are offering a free audit of your marketing efforts. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup and submit your information for your free consultation today. Look, guys, you got nothing to lose. It's free. I don't know why you wouldn't want a free audit to tell you what you're doing, whether it's effective, and how you can make some incremental changes that can make a big difference moving forward. That's www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup.